Hello and welcome to the Naval Air Podcast. My name is Mike and I am your host. Today we're going to talk about, or continue to talk about, the Fleet Squadron. My arrival at the Fleet Squadron. I'm going to, well I listened, or in reviewing the previous show, I don't think I went over the structure of a helicopter anti-submarine light squadron well enough. So I'm going to kind of dive into that a little bit more. Also kind of go over some of the things that air crewmen did, antics, the kind of relationship they had, kind of relationship they had with their pilots. Uh, I think that should make up an hour's worth of material. Um, now, you might have noticed that the, this show did not come out on Friday. I was taking care of sick a sick child Friday. Today is Tuesday, the 12th of February, Lincoln's birthday. And I'm probably one of the few people that have Lincoln's birthday off on Lincoln's birthday. So it affords me the time to throw on some headphones, crack open a microphone, talk, and uh, tell you guys what's going on. All right, so HSL. HSL is the Navy terminology for helicopter anti-submarine squadron light. Light mean referring to the aircraft being small. There were HS squadrons, helicopter anti-submarine squadrons, that used at the time H3 Sea Kings, SH3 Sea Kings. They're fairly large aircraft, two pilots, two air crewmen, each with their own set of gear, a dipping sonar, and then still a cargo section. So they can, you know, I actually don't know what the max gross weight of an H3 was. I can't tell you how many people they could fly with, but they could do both missions pretty much simultaneously without too much of a hassle. In the LAMPS, HSL, interchangeable term, LAMPS, light, airborne multi-purpose system, LAMPS Mark I, or HSL, interchangeable term. In the LAMPS community, if you were going out on a search and rescue mission, you needed to make sure you took an extra dude with you to operate the hoist and whatever. If you're on a regular old anti-submarine mission, it was just two pilots and one air crewman to operate the gear in the back. And if you came upon a SAR, a search and rescue situation, um, you had to hope that uh, <laughs> the guy could help himself. Because, well, there's I guess there's multiple ways to attack it. The most the most quick and nerdy would be that we would lower a hook. And if the guy was in good enough shape, he could hook himself up. And, you know, that would be it. All right, so... The structure of an HSL squadron in the early 80s. Okay. You had your commanding officer and you had your executive officer. Number one, number two. Typically, they were Navy commanders, which is the 05 pay grade. Wearing silver oak leaves for their rank insignia. Then, reporting to them was... The operations officer, also typically a commander, an 05, 
maybe a very senior 04 getting ready to transition to 05. And the other big kahuna would be the maintenance officer. And the maintenance officer is always, almost always a very senior 04 lieutenant commander. And under each of these, under the maintenance department and operations department were other divisions. The operations department, the divisions were safety, the secure, well, what do we call it? The library, the Intel library, um, the air crew, AWs, and the pilots or the wardroom. But there wasn't really, I don't remember ever seeing in a wardroom in our squadron space. Um, the division, all right, so safety was, you know, each division typically had a lieutenant, an 03 in charge, sometimes lieutenant junior grade, an 02. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure the Intel library, which was like three people, had a uh, lieutenant junior grade in charge. I can't remember for the life of me who the division officer for the AWs was. I'm sure also uh, a lieutenant. And, and all these officers, with very few exceptions, were pilots, okay? These are their ground jobs. This is something they did when they weren't flying. Uh, let's see. On the maintenance side. Now, the maintenance side was the divisions or little, yeah, divisions were made up. There's many of them. There was a division for maintenance control. There was the division for the line shack. We talked about the line shack on our last show. They were in charge of handling the aircraft, moving them out of the hangar into the hangar, launching them, performing daily and turnaround inspections. Then there was the various maintenance shops. You had the electrician shop made up of electricians. You had the electronics shop made up of electronics technicians. We'll get to the difference there in a minute. You had the metalsmiths airframe shop which also had the hydraulic dudes. The hydraulic technicians were also in the airframe shop because their source rate, aviation structural mechanic, was the same. Aviation structural mechanic uh, had basically three specialties or three subspecialties, hydraulics, uh, metalsmith airframe, and um, emergency gear, ejection seats. Um, let's see. Then there was the jet engine mechanics, the power plant shop. They were also in charge of, were they in charge of the rotor blades? That might have been the East Coast. There was, there was it was an interesting uh, divergence between West Coast HSL squadrons and East Coast was that the rotor blades on one coast fell um, uh, below or were the jobs of the jet engine mechanics. And on the other coast, they were part of the airframe shop. And I think rotor blades were a uh, West Coast was airframe shop. I think so electronics, electricians, jet engines, airframes, hydraulics. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Then you had the chiefs that were in charge of all those. And oh, quality assurance. Uh, QA was also a small department in maintenance and under the maintenance uh, arm of the squadron. QA was their job was to keep the publications up to date and to watch during certain sensitive maintenance operations like the torquing down of tail rotor bolts 
there are certain operations you would see, you know, the guy doing the work and a guy watching over his shoulder to make sure the work was done right. Kind of funny. Not for everything, but just for a few certain very special that this could kill you instantly if it wasn't done right kind of things. All right. Oh, and then there's the admin section, which would probably equate to, you know, the HR department nowadays of a of a civilian corporation. The admin section was made up of the yeomans and the personnel men, and um, their division officer was typically not a pilot. And you know they were they prepared the memos for the for the the commanding officer and the executive officer to sign. They kept track of personnel actions. They kept your personnel records up to date. Things of that nature. <clears throat> There's also a maintenance admin section made up of um, uh, aviation storekeepers, and there was a special rate for for the. Aviation paperwork. Um, was it AQ? I don't remember. Uh, there wasn't very many of the um, admin maintenance admin aviation. See, the admin people were 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 rates YN for yeoman, PN personnelmen um, that could be assigned anywhere in the Navy. The job was the same. So, I mean, the guy would, someone could be assigned to our squadron, work there for their three years for their shore duty, and then get assigned to a ship for their sea duty. On the maintenance side of the house, the the admin paper pusher type folks there, they were aviation specific. So if they would, if they were at HSL 33, my squadron, for example, for their shore duty, they would go to another squadron for their sea duty. Now, you might ask, uh, why would an HSL squadron be considered shore duty for admin types? And that's because the whole squadron itself didn't deploy. This, I've touched on this before. The squadron would send detachments to uh, small ships, destroyers, and frigates and the like. And when those detachments would go to sea, they did not go with the maintenance admin types. They didn't go with regular admin types they would use they would use the regular admin types on the ship to do their regular admin duties and then for the av- aviation admin stuff they just did it themselves usually the chief had facility with it and the there was an admin officer one of the four officers that would go on the deployment was the admin officer so between the chief the admin officer leading petty officer and usually a handy aw or two that wasn't actually involved in something they would get stuck with Admin stuff while on the ship. So, all right. So there's those are that's the breakdown of the structure of a squadron, an HSL squadron in the Navy at the time I was in. And it's interesting to note that the HSL squadron in the aviation arm of the Navy. I'm sure there's exceptions in the other departments. Is probably the smallest. A unit of command. The debts, I don't think, count because they still. I mean, even though they become their own little entities, with their own, their you know, I mean, they're their own little kingdoms. They're still a subset of the of the squadron. Contrast that to, say, you know, the army, where probably the smallest unit of command, a standard smallest unit of command, would be a company. 
probably about the same amount of people in a company in the army versus a squadron in the navy except a guy in charge of a company in the army is just merely a captain typically or even a first lieutenant you know 0203 and a guy in charge you know the commanding officer in in the squadron is an 05 sometimes 06 uh, for example the training squadron the rag hsl 31 the commanding officer was typically a captain in 06. All right, so now the AWs, the air crewmen, their job was to fly. Their job was to prepare, well, not specifically prepare the aircraft for flight. That was part of a plane captain's duty to certify, you know, do those inspections. But everyone had their duty to get ready to go. And the typical go started with a brief. Now, in the West Coast, the standard morning briefing time was 6.30. 6.30 brief, 8.30 launch. Two hours from brief to getting the airplane ready. Or actually to, you know, two, not getting the airplane ready. Two hours from brief to rotors turning, engines up, chocks pulled, taxing out. Off we go. And you might think, wow, two hours, that's a long time. Well, the first half hour is spent sitting <laughs> sitting in the brief talking about what we're going to do. Um, and I typically give you an hour to round up all this crap that needed to go out to the aircraft. And I gave you a half hour at the aircraft to do your pre-flight, stow the stuff, be in place when... You know, we're firing up engine number one. So the AW, that's their job was to, you know, fly. Now, if you were not on the flight schedule, you were expected to learn, learn something, study site recognition of Soviet ships, aircraft, and submarines, study the NATOPS manual for your aircraft. Study something to prepare for your plane captain boards. Study, study, study. Now, you might remember me talking about the air crew lounge. And that's where the studying was supposed to occur. Our NATOPS flight jackets, our records, our, our records involved for the flying was kept up there in a filing cabinet in the air crew lounge. And it was a place to go. And if you were not on the flight schedule, you're expected to be there or expected to be around not just disappear in case they needed you for something. And typically that was to clean something up or go get something or, you know, go to the squadron next door. Or retreat. I mean, you know, errands. Okay. That way, <laughs> you're expected to be available for errands. So up in the, you go up to the air crew lounge, check out a publication, you know, read it, examine it, study it, whatever. Now, the funny thing is, is the attitude in the air crew lounge in the fleet squadron was pretty similar to the attitude in the air crew lounge in the training command, the RAG, with the exception was with the with the exception, the difference was there was no phone to answer, okay? Which meant that if people in the air crew lounge are typically not studying, they were goofing off. You know, we did some. If there was enough people around and somebody senior enough to be there, they would not let us goof around 
which meant just sitting there or taking a nap or, you know, reading a book, reading, you know, a book for fun, but reading something for business, they would make you. Now, Thursday in the squadron was no fly days. Those were considered safety stand down days and days for the pilots all to get together and do their pilot stuff. And all the air crew, we all got together and we did recognition as a group or we did some sort of training as a group all day long. Um, up until lunchtime. Lunchtime was typically 11.30. We'd just creep out around 11.15. Drive, you know, you had to drive down to the chow hall. Uh, lunch was only supposed to be an hour, but we almost always took an hour and a half. 11.30 to 1, call it 11.30 to 1. On Thursdays, the no-fly day, we had the squadron had what was called quarters. Uh, and that means the whole squadron forms up outside the hangar by their little divisions. You know, all the AWs here, all the pilots here, you know, the electricians here, the jet mechanics here, all the maintenance. You know, we'd form up. Uh, the commanding officer would come out and he would address us, tell us what's going on, what's coming up. This detachment's departing this day. This detachment's coming home this day. We have this day to do this. We have this day to do that. That sort of thing. And it happened every Thursday in the afternoon after lunch. And then after quarters, we would go back. Quarters lasted about a half hour maybe. Because we were standing outside. So the CO wouldn't keep us that long. Go back to the air crew lounge. Clean up. We're also... Now... We had our little office space downstairs for the chief and the one shore duty guy, leading petty officer or whatever. Um, but that's where you didn't hang out. If you hung out in the office, they would give you something to do. So that's why you hung out in the air crew lounge. Otherwise, you were flying. Now, the Navy has a, a rule called crew rest. And the crew rest rule is if you come in early, you kind of get to go home early the day before if you're on an early reef so you can get enough sleep. And if you did come in early, you got to go home early if you flew early because, you know, that's the way it was. You you did your eight hours, right? Otherwise, the work day was 7.30 to 4.30. Or is it 7.30 to 3.30? <laughs> 7.30 to 4.00? Somewhere in there, <laughs> twenty hour, twenty, twenty years. Can't remember the exact time. Yeah, I'm gonna say seven thirty to four. Um, and you're on your hour lunch, hour and a half lunch. There really wasn't that hard of a work day if you weren't flying. If you were flying, you know you had to be there by six thirty, you know, which means you kind of showed up a little earlier than that to get dressed or changed. If you had an afternoon flight, you still had to come in normal time fly and then sleep late the next day and come in later all right now flying typically if you're not on a deployment or on a detachment your flying is practice and training for things you would do when you're on deployment or detachment i'm gonna say on debt okay that's the shorthand i'm on debt or i'm on deployment interchangeable term so you're practicing, oh, landing on a ship. 
maybe some reserve force ship needs to keep their deck landing qualification or their certification to allow helicopters to land on them up. So they'll say, hey, we're available for what's called DLQs. So if you have some pilots that need DLQ practice, we have people on our ship that need DLQ practice coming out and do that. Um, So we would do that. Or we would... uh, Training for... A lot of the stuff we would do would be uh, search and rescue kind of things where we'd throw smoke in the water. We had two choices of 15, 20-minute smoke or an almost hour-long smoke. You know, it's a big can. You know, throw it in the water. Salt water gets inside of it, lights off a flare, and it burns for the predetermined amount of time. So if we threw a a 45-minute or hour smoke, typically it's 45, 55 minutes. We call it an hour smoke. So you throw an hour smoke in the water, it burns. So if it's daytime, you see the flare. If it's nighttime, you see the smoke on the water. And we would pretend that that was a, a survivor in the water, and we would fly search and rescue patterns to the smoke. You know, come do your you know, your downwind leg, your base leg. You're doing your approach to the smoke, and the air, you know the air crewman is in the back, calling out. I mean, there's a litany. There's a there's a a prescribed script 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 of things to say as you approach the survivor in the water. You're looking out, you say, okay, the survivor is 100 yards away, easy forward, and as the helicopter moves, you give a countdown, 75 yards, 50 yards, 20 yards, 10, start slowing down, okay, and as you're saying it, they're also slowing down, you go easy forward, forward, easy, 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 okay, you're over the survivor, hoist going down. Now, while the hoist is going down, you are... Well, not expected because it's not trained. You're not taught to call the hover while you're while they're hovering and you're lowering the hoist. You are taught in the rag to lower the hoist. Hoist halfway down, hoist three quarters of the way down, hoist all the way down. Swimmer swimming to hoist, swimmer hooking up, you know, hoist, you know, weight coming in air. Okay, say those things. Not giving an indication about how well the pilot is doing their hover. Well, when you get to the fleet squadron, some pilots like you to tell them that they're still hovering well. So by first few forays into doing search and rescue patterns, because we did these in the training squadron, doing search and rescue patterns or SAR patterns in the fleet squadron, I was woefully inadequate. I, I'm I'm just calling hoist, you know, hoist going down, hoist quarter way down, and it some point, the, the senior crewman with me says, um, aren't you going to call the hover? I'm like, uh, what do you mean by that? Well, you're supposed to tell them if they're drifting one way, forward, backward, or whatever. Oh, really? <laughs> That's news to me. Okay. So, you know, you get to the... Then you start getting into... You have to change your 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 pattern, your script. You know, hoist going down, good hover. Hoist quarter of the way down, good hover. Hoist halfway down, you're drifting left, easy right, good hover, hoist halfway all the way down, hoist in the water, good hover, you know, I mean, so you, you keep talking and the idea is to give the pilot as much, you know, I guess extra information because, you know, he's looking, he could see, you know, this is daytime, he could see his horizon, he has, a, he has his particular scan of instruments and horizon to make sure he's hovering well. In addition to the guy in the back, me lowering the hoist, talking that his hover as well. So, you know, the 
the you know, hoist in the water, guy hooking up, okay, weight coming on aircraft, and you're prepping the pilot that as you're raising the hoist, because the guy's floating, right? The hoist, the aircraft doesn't have weight on it. And at the point where the hoist picks the guy up out of the water, you're supposed to kind of time that weight coming on aircraft now, now, now. So now the pilot knows that the guy is, the aircraft is holding the guy up, not the water, right? Same thing back up. You know, swimmer out of the water, good hover. Swimmer halfway up, good hover, you know. Get to the top, swimmer in the door, swimmer in the aircraft. And at that point, you kind of stop talking because you unhook them. You get them to sit down. When you're done, okay, everyone's secure in the back. And you look around, close the door, clear right forward flight, you take off. So we would do this for 45 minutes, which 45 minutes to an hour, okay. So on a big smoke, you could probably get five or six of these runs in. We fly around, you know, swimmer at the survivor at the nine o'clock, you know, five o'clock to, or you know, as, a, as they come around 10, 11. Okay. Swimmer dead ahead or survivor dead ahead. No, 300 yards, 100 yards. Anyway, so you, you, you get the idea of what we do. This is one thing that we would train for other than, you know, in addition to landing on ships. Now, you're asking yourself, okay, Mike. This is an anti-submarine helicopter squadron. Shouldn't they be chasing submarines? And I say to you, listener, yes, we should. (laughs) And the actual submarine chasing time was very minimal. Uh, In the Lamps Mark I community, HSL, anti-submarine warfare was our main line of work. But our actual practicing of it was... Not as often as practicing search and rescue, practicing landing on a ship, practicing moving passengers, practicing things we'd actually do when we get on the ship. Uh, just, I don't know. Lamps Mark One was considered an extension of a, of a destroyer's, you know, a ship's weapons package or sensor package. For hunt, when it came to hunting submarines, we would put stuff in the water, sauna buoys, and we would relay the information the sauna buoys were gathering back to the ship for someone on the ship to do the analysis. We were just their eyes and ears on the scene and to deliver a weapon if needed be, okay? So our submarine chasing practice was kind of minimal. Now, That's not to say that we didn't, that some real on top time for submarines wasn't provided to us. Typically, you know, there's a submarine base in San Diego, and typically, when an American submarine, they have to practice evading detection, okay? Just like we need practice detecting and trying to find submarines. So, uh, word would come out, or, you know, Someone, somebody, somewhere higher up would say, okay, this submarine is doing some workup. And they would tell the Naval Air Force, okay, this submarine is going to be in this area trying to hide from you guys from from this time to this time. You send out whoever you think you want to try to find them. Okay, now that happened, that didn't happen all that often for us. Uh, I got to do it twice. Once in the training squadron, once in the fleet squadron. That was before, okay, let me rephrase. Once in the training squadron, once in the fleet squadron before I was put on a detachment, on a dead. 
once we got put on a debt, the debt went to Hawaii and we got to practice some of that in Hawaii. But here at San Diego, twice. So one day, you know, so that kind of evolution, we would meet at what was called the the uh, the ASWOC, the Anti-Submarine Warfare Operations Center. There's an ASWOC in there in San Diego or North Island. It was near the uh, S3 hangars. Uh, very pretty girl was the receptionist girl there. Man, she must have had people hitting on her all the time. Uh, anyway, so we'd meet at the ASWOC, and the ASWOC would come in because they're the ones that kind of coordinated. This submarine's going to be in this area at this time. In, in an, in an anti-submarine warfare operations center is the one who's saying, okay, you H2s, you cover this area. You guys, S3s, cover this area. You guys cover this area. So all the crews, all the flight crews that were going to be on this exercise were there in this room. And they'd run down everyone's different area of responsibility. They would assign flight altitudes. They would assign boxes of area of responsibility and places for you to fly in. And generally set up the whole exercise and then assign either an S3, which is a four-person anti-submarine jet um, carrier born. They would assign an S3 as the overall tactical coordination or a P3, now, P-3 is a four-engine maritime patrol bomber that has a crew of 13. Uh, two pilots, a flight engineer, a tactic coordinator, three three air crewmen, three AWs to operate, three sensor suites to find submarines. So anyway, so it's a to borrow an Army term, it's a combined arms operation to go look for a submarine if you kind of know where it's going to be already. So we'd have our, you know, we'd be assigned our frequencies of who to contact for what and what we would be doing. And usually the ASWOC brief was a good hour before or an hour and a half before your regular pre-flight brief. I remember that to call me at home for my one, my one trip, my one, my one, let's look for real submarine was a 5 a.m. brief at the ASWOC. They actually had to call me at home because I'd already been home. It was like 6 o'clock in the evening, 6.30. I uh, just want to let you know that you are going to be on this flight. We have a brief at the ASWOC at 5 a.m. So make sure you get to sleep early. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks for telling me after I left, right? Because the flight schedule is supposed to be out by 4 or 4.30 the day. Apparently they were, they were you know, trying to wheel and deal to get on to this exercise to look for the submarine. So meet at the ASWOC at 5, ASWOC brief for an hour, 5 to 6, transit back to the squadron, regular standard pre-flight brief at five at 6.30, load up the airplane, you know, fire it up and go fly. Now when I, he- when I refer to load up the airplane, what am I loading up, you're asking, right? So what we're loading up is we're making sure uh, that the smoke dispensers... There's eight smoke dispensers for the short for the for the for the 15 minute smokes the 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 short burning smokes. There's four on each side of the airplane, and uh, what you do is you could deploy them as as a as a way to mark if you if you find a submarine by magnetic anomaly. Oh, we got a we have a we have a madman here. They punch out a smoke, and if you flew over the submarine and kept 
I might have actually talked about this before. If you flew over the submarine and kept getting magnetic hits off of them, you punch out smokes, you can look back and see the the path of the submarine on the surface of water by a fault. See where the way the smokes go. You'd also punch out smokes to mark a survivor in the water if you're doing a search and rescue. So to make sure the smokes were loaded and ready to go. On an anti-submarine mission, part of the brief was what mix of sauna buoys we could carry. We could carry 15 sauna buoys. And we had to have a mix of frequencies and a mix of depth. Uh, because the sauna buoys that we could carry in H2s is not nearly as not nearly a big a variety as the sauna buoys, say, an S3 or P3 can carry. I don't know how many sauna buoys P3 can carry, but it's a buttload, okay? We could carry only... Um, Low far, low far sauna buoys, non-directional, just hear the sound of the water, low frequency and ranging. And we could and we could set them to shallow or deep. We could set the hydrophones to go shallow or deep. And you would set that based on knowing where the thermal layer in the water is. Uh, all the water, all the ocean has a layer where you have warm water and there's a point where the water gets really cold. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dramatic shift from one temperature to another. So that's the layer. And a submarine could hide above or below the layer because that layer reflects sound. So we had to know, we had to have a mix of deep and shallow and we had to have a mix of channels. Uh, there's only, there's 40, I think there's 40 channels of sub, of the channels, uh, the radio frequency channels for the sun boys to transmit their data back to us, okay? So there's 40 channels and we can only listen to four at a time. Oh, I take that. We also had active pingers. I'm sorry. We could drop. So there's four different. Okay, we had to take channel into account. What channel we're going to put the, the sauna buoy on. Uh, high, shallow, or deep. And then active or passive. Yeah, so I forgot. We could drop pingers. We could we could drop a sauna buoy in the water. That would ping. Sonar ping. Bing. Bing. And it could hear you. You could hear its echo, and then we had a little piece of gear that could that could measure the distance between between ping and echo. Right, so it was a paper trace. It would scroll and it would use the heat pens, <laughs> heat transfer, right? And it would ping, and if you hear the echo, you know the ping would make a jump, and then the echo would make a jump, and you could stop the thing. And you had these little sliding rulers on the equipment. That you put the ping here and the echo there, and it would tell you how far the the contact was from the sum, the sauna buoy at the time of the ping. And then we had a little kind of cheesy little in-flight computer. You could punch that data in. It was I don't call it a computer. It was more of a way to keep track of stuff we'd found out. Okay, that's basically what it was about. And so with with pingers, with pinging sauna buoys, if you drop you know three of them in a triangle, whatever, and he's inside, you could. Between, by knowing where the sum, the sauna buoys are and how far you can have a, a good fix on where the submarine was. So part of our brief would be, okay, you know, how many ping, how many pinging sauna buoys are we going to take? How many passive sauna buoys are we going to take? How many are we going to set for deep? How many are going to set for shallow? And make sure that you have, you know, 15 sauna buoys with 15 different channels so they wouldn't step on each other. And again, in the H2, we could only listen to four of those at a time. 
So, I mean, we could have 10 in the water. You just got to remember which 10 you can. And we had a little channel selector saying, turn, you know, tune into the ones you needed. So, you know, part of that brief, make sure the smoke's, again, set up. We had to dig the sauna buoys out of the storage locker based on what, you know, the loadout we agreed upon in the brief. Um, let's see what else. Oh, we had, we had a bag. And then inside that bag had three life rafts and a couple other pieces of gear. And then we had another bag that was the SAR bag that, that had a cable splice unit, a spare hook, some other things, a glove, special glove. Or maybe that was all in the same bag. That was all in the same bag. So three life rafts and then the SAR kit the, that had extra, you know, extra things to do perform a search and rescue. You had to take all that out to the aircraft. Load it up, loading up sauna buoys. If you load up the sauna buoys and we had a little sauna buoy launcher, you'd have to go right in grease pencil on the sauna buoy launcher what sauna buoy was in each position so you you know knew what you were shooting out of the side of the airplane. Now, these sauna buoys were launched by what was called CADs or cartridge-activated devices. They're basically thirty-eight caliber uh, sh- pistol shells that screwed on the back of the sauna buoys and they the sauna buoys would go into the launcher and when we launched we push the button and that would elect- electrically electro- electrically electrically electronically anyway it would fire off this 38 caliber shell and shoot the sauna buoy out, out the side of the airplane and the sauna buoy would float down to the ocean via little like rotor blades or a parachute, depending on the type. And it would hit the water, and they were saltwater activated. They would last about an hour, I'd think, and then drop their microphones and start transmitting. So, so that was, that's what it took to get the airplane ready for, look, okay, so actually, I'm sorry, I'm, Missing a spot. So you load the sauna buoys and the launcher. Write down on the launch, on the actual launch control panel what was in each position. And then you did your pre-flight, which included checking out various things. I have my... I still have a copy of a pocket checklist. I wonder if we want to go over that now. No, I think we'll save that. I think we'll save that for the next show. I have the, I have the pocket checklist not next to me. One, we're at thirty nine minutes, and that's a way to guarantee to get it to go over an hour. Yeah, I think we'll I think we'll go over checklists on the next on the next show before we get to start talking about deployments. All right, so so pre flight the aircraft. Um, Pilots come out, they do their thing, and we have to have, if you remember, we have to have a line crew out there with a with a portable generator to give us uh, DC power to start the aircraft, start both engines, and we had a rotor brake. Once both engines were up and running, everyone was clear of the rotor arc. We'd let the you know start the start the rotors, and then. Do the post-start checklist, pre-takeoff check, or pre-taxi checklist. Taxi, go. Now, our one 
the you know the one trip I remember. I mean this one this one exercise I got to partake on. I don't remember getting any contact on the American submarine. Um, but we did practice our combined arms tactics when working with a P three S three and H three. I mean every. I think every community was represented by at least one aircraft and how the powers that be decided which squadron got to send their one aircraft to do the let's look for an American submarine exercise. I have no idea. But basically that's what it was. You know, American submarines going to be in this area. Go see if you can find them. That's, that's, that's the best way to sum up how that worked. All right, so what were some of the other things we did in the fleet squadron before we got put on detachments. Um, so, so flying, I mean, we flew, I had to have flown. Well, I suppose I can dig out my flight records and tell you how often, what my, what my frequency of flying was. Okay. So according to the flight records, my last flight in the training squadron was on the 29th of March of 1984. Four hours. Wow. One hour at night. Five hours. Oh, that was that was a DLQ trip as well. Huh. All right. So I arrived to the squadron early May, HSL-33. My first flight in HSL-33 was on the 5th of April. Um, so I flew a couple of days that week, flew a couple of days the next week. And then a long time without flying from 11 April to 22 May. I was wondering what I was doing during that time. I had to have been going through some sort of paperwork requalification process or I don't know what. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay. So in May, I only flew three times in May of that year. 22, 23, and 24. Um, It looks like one of those flights was to do search and rescue jumps. Just do SAR jumps. And then in June, let's see, looks like at least twice a week in June. And then in July, I got sent out to the line shack. So no flights, and no flying in July, no flying in August. And then early September, got deaded up. And started flying with my detachment. And at that point, it was fly every day almost. Yeah, seven. Not so much in September, but in October when we went on our little short cruise. Second October, two flights. Three October, 4.9 hours. Four October, four and a half hours. Six October, 2.2. Seven October, four hours. 8 October, 2 hours, 2 more hours. <laughs> so, you get the point. So, it's not like I was... I mean, it started flying, but not as much as you would think. It was maybe twice a week once we got into the groove, but it took a while to get there. That's At least that's what the flight records say. In, I already okay, so I already outlined the types of flying we did. I already outlined we actually hunted submarines. What we did. Um, oh, 
aircrew types. Okay. Now, our aircrew shop, AW shop, was made up of about oh, 20 guys, maybe? 20 guys with any, at any given time, six to eight of them out on deployment. Now, aircrew types are almost uh, of a certain breed, okay? They, a certain mentality, that's a better term than certain breed. They almost all shared some common traits in the way they approached life and the way they approached being in the Navy and the way they approached flying. Um, it's not fearless. All right. That's, that's too grand of a term, but it was pragmatic. All right. Flying's my job. I like to fly. I mean, cause in the Navy, you have to volunteer to fly. You cannot be forced to fly if you don't want to. If you pick a job that involves flying, you have to sign a paper saying, I, I know I'm flying. I'm fully volunteering for duty involving flight. I know the dangers. Give me my hundred bucks a month. I mean, it was cause yeah, that's what you got extra hundred. Well, it was like 85 when I first started. It was like 110 by the time I got out. So flight pay wasn't all that much. 85 bucks a month. Right. Um, but there, if you put them all in the same room and you got to know them, you would find same with pilots. I would imagine you would find a common, there was some common thing that tied them all together that made them suitable or made their personalities suitable for being an AW or more specifically an AW in the lamps mark one community, a slight irreverence, um, you know, we all like to fly. We all knew the dangers. No one felt that no one goes up thinking that I'm going to crash. Everyone goes up thinking that I'm going to come back, you know, but you train for emergencies. So if something bad happens, you, you, you still get to walk away from it. Um, and there's always a, there's always a pecking order, right? And it not necessarily had to do with your rank, it had to do with your experience. Those that had been out on multiple deployments, their word was respected more than someone who had never been out on a deployment. Even if the guy who had been out on multiple deployments was more senior or or junior to the guy who had never been out, okay? So if you've never been out, you're considered a newbie and you're considered you're you're expected to shut up and keep your ears open and learn what the the dudes have been out before the salty dogs. You're supposed to, you know, take their mentorship and apply it. Um, but the dudes who had all been out together or had already been out once. <laughs> okay. It's hard to explain the, the mentality of, of the way they treat it. I mean, they make fun of each other and they rip on each other, but it, they still respected each other. If they didn't respect you and if they didn't care, they wouldn't talk to you You know that kind of a thing. So if, if you got razzed, you could take comfort in the fact that you're only being razzed because they accepted you into their brotherhood. Okay. 
And what it took to get razzed was doing something typically dumb. Uh, you got a special, especially razzed if you did something dumb after after somebody already warned you that what you're doing is dumb and it's gonna you know you're gonna it's gonna blow up in your face. But yeah, I mean the the wit, the sarcastic wit that would bounce around inside that aircrew lounge on the no fly days was. Well, it was it was hilarious, and and just incredible, and and I can't do it justice describing it, and I uh, I can sit here and I can just just wish that I had some sort of audio recording of the way people talk to each other, because I'm sure you would find it funny like I do. I mean, and. And some of the razzing, again, comes from, you know, shared experience. Oh, they saw this guy do something stupid, and they could bring it up and rub it in his face. Or, you know, we all, we all watch somebody do something stupid and, and, you know, give him a, just laugh or give him gratuitous verbal abuse. Um, but, yeah, you, you got to remember that this was an occupation of men only. And so almost a locker room mentality, if you want to say, or frat house mentality, but no, not demeaning. Okay, no one was ever demeaned or or made to feel less inadequate. They weren't, you know, when they're they're harassed for doing something stupid. Their intelligence wasn't called into question. But it was okay. You know, we tried to warn you, or we let you in. You know, the ultimate goal is for them to learn from that mistake. And not commit the same error again, because the, I mean, in the, in the aircrew lounge to be to have this kind of activity go, going on, it's an, it's a, the hope is that if you learn, or garner the thick skin from being razzed when you're in the air and things are coming apart, you could take it. I mean, the, not that that's the conscious a, a conscious goal of giving pressure or putting pressure on an air crewman, but it is a side benefit. And if they see someone coming apart because they couldn't deal with their head of thick skin, then it was wondered aloud. Wow. Gee, if they can't handle some good natured fun poking at them, what are they going to do when, you know, an engine falls off? I mean, that's kind of drastic, but what are they going to do when, when the, when the crap hits the fan, can they handle it? Cause they can't handle this. So, it was, it was, can't call it a weeding out process because weeding out should have already been done through search and rescue school, through SAR school, I mean, through SEER school, through air crew school, all that stuff should have been done. But <clears throat> this is how you fit in. This is how you contribute to the squadron is how you fit in, excuse me, how you fit in with the crowd. And the crowd was almost all the same. So when you have all the same ego in the room, sometimes you get, friction but a lot of time you get humor because everyone understands each other and um well bottom line is it was fun it was great fun to be a part of it and and i'll dare say that i arrived in the squadron in april early april so the month of april a little bit of flying month of may a little bit of flying month of june a little bit of flying those are probably the best three months of my time in the navy uh, I'm at my fleet squadron. I finished my training. 
Um, I'm not out on deployment yet where life turns to crap. Um, I'm, I'm amongst, uh, I'm, I'm amongst peers that are professional, that are fun to work with. I'm doing a fun job. You know, if I'm not flying, I'm up in the air crew lounge learning more or maybe sneaking in some reading for my own benefit. Um, I'm living off base, right? I, I do remember telling the story already about arriving at the fleet squadron and they had no barracks rooms available, so I had to go secure my own off-base housing. Uh, I was living on Coronado Island for those months, April, May, and June. Five minutes from the from the front gate of North Island. Uh, again, friends that were peers were all doing the same job. We had fun together. It was late spring in San Diego. Weather was great. Best best three months of my four years of active duty in the Navy were those three months. My first three months in the fleet squadron. After that came the. <laughs> Things started going up. The rent went up, so we had to move off Coronado Island. Uh, I got put in the line shack, and then I went on deployment. So, you know, things things change. But <clears throat> again, those three months were the best. All right. So, I've been talking for a while, trying to give you more insight into the life in the fleet squadron before deployment. Um, next, next series of shows. All right. I'm going to start talking about life on deployment or on debt. I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to go over maybe a, I will see, but I'm going to break out the pocket checklist and, and I'll probably go over this kind of things that you were expected to look for and know before you went flying in the mighty SH2FC Sprite. Um, then we'll talk about going on deployment, what life on the ship is like, but, you know, what kind of ports we visited, those kind of things, the flying we did. And I'm still looking to get some pilot viewpoint uh, on this show. Got to remind one guy who volunteered, I got to remind him that, hey, I'm starting to run out of material. It's time for him to start sending me stuff. Um, okay, what else do we want to talk about housekeeping wise um all right email um send me an email navalaircrew at gmail.com maybe you have uh some questions about some of the things i've talked about i'll be more than happy to amplify um if you want to tell me that you don't like the pace of the show give me ideas how to improve it if you like what's going on you can tell me that too uh, you can also leave feedback on iTunes if you want. I've had three listeners do that already. I'll be more than happy to accept more. There is a a forum board at uh, navalair.com. You can leave messages there if you'd like. Somebody had already pointed out to me that I'd kind of let it slide, so I need uh, I've brought it back up to date. Please. Feel free to go there. Register and leave feedback there if you want. Um, so yeah, three places to leave feedback. Forum message board, iTunes, or send me an email direct, navalaircrew at gmail.com. 
So that's going to do it for today. I'm going to be signing off. Take care and God bless.